There's good news and bad news to chat about today. The good news is something I've been able to talk about for the past few years, at the end actually, of each year. Come January 1st, a whole lot of people are going to see their paychecks increase because of some state and local minimum wage hikes that are going into effect. That's going to touch the lives of hundreds of thousands of people, which shows why movements matter. And in this case, I'm referring mostly to the Fight for 15, which many of my listeners are familiar with. The bad news, and I guess I have to add this as the other side of the coin, we are quickly becoming a country divided in half when it comes to decent wages. And that's what we're going to be talking about in our first segment. And two years after she first came on the program, progressive candidate Cara Eastman is back to talk about her second campaign to win a congressional seat in Nebraska and doing so against the wishes of the party elites once again. This is Jonathan Tassini, and this is the Working Life Podcast for December 25th, 2019. And yes, Merry Christmas to those of you who do that kind of thing. A reminder first, as usual, that this podcast is sponsored by the American Postal Workers Union, which fights for dignity and respect on the job and decent pay and benefits and safe working conditions for its 200,000 United States Postal Service employees and retirees and nearly 2,000 private sector mail workers who have been working their butts off during this holiday season, as they always do. Of course, you can also hear the podcast on the Progressive Radio Network, Thursdays at 6 p.m. Eastern Time. You can find us on Spotify, Stitcher, iTunes, you name it. We depend not just on our major sponsor, but on small financial sponsors like you. So, you know what? In the spirit of the holiday season, I know I ask this every episode, but in the spirit of the holiday season, when you're bombarded by God knows dozens and dozens of pleas for please give money, I'm going to do that too. Go over to workinglife.org and click on the podcast tab. Look for that link to Patreon and become a financial sponsor of the show at whatever level you can afford. And by the way, one programming note, we are going to take next week off since it's usually a pretty quiet time. Mostly it is just hard to find a guest who has the time or is around to record an interesting and dynamic segment. So don't weep and don't cry. We'll be back with a new episode on January 8th, 2020. Now, I am always encouraging people to try to find the positive in our political realities Not that I'm asking people to put on rose-colored glasses and ignore the real crap that is out there, but rather to understand that movements take time. There are steps forward and there are steps backward. I mean, come on, if you had told most people, say, a decade ago, that it would be the law of the land that anyone could marry whomever they wanted, most people would have said you were dreaming. But after lots of hard organizing, that is a reality, or that in your lifetime, you could not convince people that given endemic racism, that they would live to see an African-American become president. People would just think that that was just fantasy. And the same goes for looking at the relatively swift rise in state and local minimum wages in many places in really under a decade. And that's mostly thanks to the incredible organizing that has been at the heart of the Fight for 15 campaign. So let's recap a couple of things first. The federal minimum wage has been stuck at $7.25 since 2009, which is an absolute immoral outrage. 
especially if you take into account that if you look at productivity, and I make this point on this podcast a lot, that over the past, say, 30 to 40 years, the minimum wage should be above $20 an hour based on how hard people have been working. Yes, say that again. The federal minimum wage, if you look at productivity, should be above $20 an hour, not $7.25. And we know why it's stuck there. Political paralysis and the power of corporate lobbyists to obstruct any effort at raising the minimum wage to a livable wage, a somewhat livable wage, which I'll talk about in a moment. So fast food workers and advocates took it upon themselves to say, basically, screw this. And they began organizing and marching. And as a result, over the past few years, each January 1st, states and localities around the nation have seen significant hikes in the minimum wage, some reaching, in fact, $15 an hour, and a few even a bit higher. Now, two caveats in this good story. Even at $15 an hour, and you can take out your calculator and do the math, if you work 40 hours a week, 52 weeks a year, without a single day off, and of course, no pension, and if you're lucky, bare bones health care coverage, you'd only gross at $15 an hour, $31,200 a year, which is just a shade above the 2019 federal poverty line for a household of four people and below the poverty line for a household of five. This isn't a middle-class livelihood. And the second point is that if you look at the map of where these higher minimum wages are coming into effect, it becomes pretty clear that we now have a country divided into two. There's one section of the country places where people earn a much higher minimum wage, close or coming close to $15 an hour. And then there are places where the minimum wage is stuck at much lower levels. And surprise, surprise, and people know that I'm not a fan of the Democratic Party on this podcast. I've been very critical of the Democratic Party. But the places where minimum wages are much higher are generally speaking states where Democrats run the show, where Democrats have enough power to pass wage hikes in local and state legislatures and also have an executive in power, mainly a governor, who will sign the hikes into law. And let's face it, those hikes happen again, politicians act because of movements that have forced those legislators to take those steps. And on the other side, you've got Republican-led political bodies that not only refuse to raise minimum wages, but in fact try to block or undo modest hikes passed in islands of movement-backed action. Say a local town or county passes a hike, but the state powers that be step in and say, uh-uh, you don't have the power to pass that. We get to decide. So let's now pick up the whole story of the minimum wage with Yannette Lathrop, a policy analyst at the National Employment Law Project who tracks the entire minimum wage picture. We always do this exercise at the end of the year, Yannette, because actually this is when a lot of the minimum wage increases that have been fought for are now coming into play, are now being enacted or actually taking effect on the turn of the year. And I have a few sort of broader 
points that I want to make and broader areas that I thought we would get into. But why don't you give us kind of the general view and the general summary of what we're going to be looking at come the turn of the year, January 1st? Yeah, so on January 1st, and actually uh, um, December 31st in New York, but over, otherwise uh, January 1st, there will be uh, 21 states and 26 cities and counties raising their wages. So that's a total of about 47 jurisdictions raising wages sometime uh, around the new year, which is really great because workers really def- desperately need this sort of uh, uh, good news for them. And let's dig into that for a moment. I mean, this really means very significant changes for the kinds of folks who work for relatively speaking low wages. And I've made the point in this podcast many, many times that if you took into account productivity over the last 30 to 40 years, the minimum wage, the federal minimum wage, and therefore the state minimum wages should be well above $20 an hour. So the fact that the great folks who have been fighting for the $15 an hour campaign, the $15 an hour minimum wage, the minimum wage being raised to $15 an hour, really is just in some way, in my view, a down payment on what it should be and where it should be. But but still, when you get to $15 an hour, that means actually people being able to pay their bills, right? It means a real investment in people's economic lives. And then, generally speaking, in the economic vibrance of the communities that they live in. Correct. I mean, 15, as you say, is really not enough in many places in the country now. It might have been uh, maybe five years ago, but today is just not. Nonetheless, 15 is a good step forward, and that is important to to uh, keep in mind. But yes, I mean, the cost of living has been increasing. Housing has been exponentially increasing. Uh, healthcare and education have been also skyrocketing. There are so many uh, costs of living that have been going up while at the federal level, things have stagnated. And so when we are looking at uh, what we're looking at uh, in January and actually also the rest of the year, our increases are going to be taking are going to be uh, benefiting workers, whether they are to 15 or some level below, uh, an increase is going to an increase that they will be uh, pretty beneficial for those who are affected. And there's no doubt in your mind and in my mind, and I assume in many of my listeners' minds, that these kinds of hikes have come not just because legislators all of a sudden woke up one day and decided to be really nice and to all of a sudden see the reality of the starvation wages people were working for, but it's directly relatable and directly connected to the years-long campaign of activists in cities that have been pushing legislators to take the move and and move that those wages up. And I'm specifically referring to the $15 wage, the Fight for 15 movement, right? Exactly. Uh, this is a movement that has been led by low-wage workers themselves, and it has made such a huge impact uh, throughout the country uh, for, for many low-wage workers and their families. This uh, movement really has taken, uh, has uh, been one of the most popular movements of uh, late uh, for many people, uh, many voters, including. I mean, some of these wages have been uh, increased through the ballot, through ballot initiatives. So that's important to also keep in mind. And I underscore that for my listeners because I often find, and I'm sure this is true in your world too, that people are generally speaking depressed often by the political reality around them, the inability of Congress to do what it takes for real working people, the fact that Congress is often bought off by lobbyists and by corporate interests. But we always have to look, I think, at the great uh, strides forward that 
movements have made, people organizing in the streets outside of the government offices and therefore then forcing legislators to do the right thing. And so I think this is an incredibly positive thing to look at, given that we just said that there's still a lot of movement to make and a lot of terrain we have to cover to get people into real wages, meaning wages where people can actually make a middle-class living. But this is a great start. And I think we have to be positive about that, right? Absolutely. I mean, if we only look at the downsides of things, I think we will be overwhelmed by that. But that is one of the things about the 5 for 15, I believe, is that it really has given people hope and given people a perspective of how things can change. And and yes, 15 is one step forward and we need to get uh, to higher wages eventually. But, you know, it, it is that positivity of the 5 for 15 the perseverance of workers that has this made this a uh, very successful movement. Mm. The one area where I have some concern and I look at the chart of all the great raises and all the vi- great victories that have happened state by state is the fact that these minimum wages, these hikes are going to be indexed to the consumer price index, the CPI. And I've been very critical of the CPI over many years, and this is not the fault of the fight for 15 or folks like you have been urging the hikes in the minimum wage. But the fact is that the CPI, in my view, and I'm curious what your opinion is, is really an outdated measure for the reality of what people face, because the CPI, as you well know, is made up of a basket of goods and a basket of measures that is created by the Bureau of Labor Statistics by the government, but it doesn't actually take into account the realities, for example, of if you look at California, the cost of housing, which can eat up at least half of people's income. So I'm a little concerned, and tell me what you think about this, that so many of these hikes are going to be indexed to the CPI. Right. And uh, well, at the beginning of the 5 for 15, some folks were advocating for an increase or uh, indexing based on uh, median wages, which would have been a little bit better. Uh, but yes, the CPI is a reflection. Uh, it's not a, the best measure of, uh, you know, the true cost of living. Uh, there are many places, California, uh, various places in California and New York, Washington, D.C., in places even in the Midwest where housing is a huge, huge expense for families. Uh, and that is not always well reflected in the CPI. The regional CPI can take into consideration those, uh, some of those, um, a, uh, real estate changes a little bit better, but those are very, uh, regional. Uh, sometimes they are for metropolitan areas. And so you would have to pick and choose like the, one of the, uh, the CPIs that make the most sense for that region. And one of the things about that is that it can be volatile. So it's a little bit less um, uh, reliable in some ways, but th- this is a measure that we have at this point. And so at least we have something that increases wages and that does not fully erode the, the uh, wages in the long term. Oh, absolutely. It's a great thing, obviously, today and actually in the next few weeks and the next year or two that these hikes are happening. But over time, 10, 15, 20 years, the CPI will not keep pace with the actual cost of living, what it takes to make a living. But let's let's kind of put that aside for a second. Now, you and I just said it's important to celebrate and be very happy and look at the great progress. But there's a, if you, I can say, a darker side to what's happening around the minimum wage 
hikes and the fights around minimum wage because there are many states, and you know this well because your report reflects that, where there are forces trying to actually repeal uh, minimum wage hikes, and they're using, and you and I have talked about this on the podcast before, the preemption argument, meaning that a state legislature, presumably a Republican legislature where these things often happen, will all of a sudden wade in and say, hey, you locality, meaning a city or a county, you can't raise the minimum wage on your own. That's a state power, and we have all the power. So there's all sorts of movements in many states to actually undermine progress, right? Exactly. And this actually preemption is not a, a new uh, concept. It has been there for a while, but preemption of minimum wage, minimum wage laws have actually been, uh, they have accelerated over the past few years. And that coincides with the the, uh, the victories of the 5 for 15. So you can see that correlation there at least. And yes, it in many cases, it was a blatant uh, uh, state-based grab a power away from local localities uh, so that they could uh, uh, stymie the the, um, the gains at the local level. Birmingham, Alabama being one of the clearest cases, I think, but many other cases, for example, in Iowa, there were five uh, counties that have raised their wages. It was just moderate, increase, moderate increases, but they raised wages above the state level and the state went and preempted and reverted all those back to the state level minimum wage, which is basically the same as the federal level. So the, we have seen those as we as workers have been winning, uh, uh, opponents have also attempted to undo those wins, and they have been most most successful at in in places in the south, in more conservative places in the Midwest. Yeah. Mm. Okay. And you, again, perfectly lead me into the final area I wanted to talk to you about. And that is, you know, I am no fan of the Democratic Party. I've been critical of the party on this podcast and in other places because I think the party, the Democratic Party, both parties, but certainly the Democratic Party, which says it's on defending workers and defending unions, often is riddled with corporate power and lobbyists. And there are too many elements within the party who undermine workers' rights. But that said, what's happening if you look at the minimum wage hikes around the country, if you kind of look at a map, the reality is that we're creating two countries. And in one country, uh, almost half the states, roughly, it almost breaks down 50-50, in one part of the country, essentially dominated by Democratic legislatures and where you have a Democratic governor who can sign into place a bill, not to mention in localities and city cities and counties, but I'm speaking more at the state level. At that level, you see minimum wages going up almost to $15 an hour and in some places higher. On the other hand, you have many, again, so-called red states, states that are dominated by Republican legislatures, where they often have super majorities and are run by Republican governors, where the minimum wage is still at the poverty level wage, way down around $7.25, maybe $8, but it's literally a starvation wage. So it almost is as if we're creating two different countries. What do you think about that? That is actually an unfortunate effect of the political uh, landscape in some places, some areas of the country. And you're right that this is creating a, a, a two uh, two uh, region country as far as wages. And the 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 one remedy that we can look forward to, hopefully, is federal action. There is a bill in Congress for a $15 minimum wage for all throughout the country, and it has been passed at the, in the in the House. 
and now unfortunately stuck in in the Senate, uh, the uh, the Senate leadership, uh, majority leadership, and uh, the uh, the health committee in the Senate are uh, not bringing that up to the floor. So it has uh, stalled right there. But uh, advocates are continuing to push for this uh, bill to continue to move through. So you know things could could change, and you know we could see a federal minimum wage that could make undo that the the division in the in the country between those higher wage states and lower wage states uh, in higher wage regions and lower wage lower wage regions. So we'll see what happens in the in the future. But I I'm hoping that things will change for the better. I'm still optimistic about things, but I could be wrong. But I'm I'm shocked shocked that you would say that Mitch McConnell is blocking the passage <laughs> of the fifteen dollar an hour minimum wage. I'm shocked shocked. <laughs> but the to be serious, I mean that minimum wage has been stuck for many years under Democratic administrations and Democratic yeah. Congresses as well. So it, yeah. I, I don't mind dumping on Mitch McConnell because the truth is that everything good dies right now in the Republican led Senate and 2020. If you had a majority uh, Democratic Senate, it would only be by one or two votes, probably optimistically speaking. And in that majority, you would still have relatively conservative Democrats, including I'm thinking of Manchin from West Virginia. So it's not assured that just because there would be a shift in the composition of the Senate, where it would move from a Republican majority to a Democratic Senate majority. This is assuming, obviously, that you have still a majority in the House, a Democratic majority in the House, and a Democratic president. Unless you have all those aligned in some strong majorities, it's still going to be very hard to pass that. And as I pointed out before, I think we have to be always optimistic. But the political reality, and this really then switches back to where we started, is that the power of organizing at the local level, at the state level, at the county level, at the city level, is really fundamentally important to shifting workers' lives right today and not waiting for the federal level to change its political makeup. Because the reality is people have to pay their bills today. And still, this was my point with my last question, that we are looking at a divided country. We have two kinds of countries, one where people can make a somewhat better living and one where people are living on starvation wages, unfortunately. Correct. And, uh, you know, I, I think that uh, I'm still optimistic, but you're right that, you know, things are going to have to be, this is up to, to workers, uh, to advocates to push for this at the local and state level. But I'm also hoping that uh, that whoever is in the White House next, hopefully somebody who is uh, um, a, a friend of workers will understand that this is needed and will actually use their organizing power if they have it to advocate for higher wages, even if there are some Democrats that may be reluctant to endorse a wage increase. Uh, so, so, yeah, I mean, I, I would like to stay optimistic about that. But you're right. I mean, we also have to be realistic about things. And so the, the importance of state and local action will remain, even if we have a change in the, in the, uh, in the Senate and the White House.
back in 2018, Kara Eastman came within 1.9% or just about 5,000 votes out of almost 250,000 votes cast of unseating the incumbent Republican in the 2nd Congressional District in Nebraska. Now, you would think when Kara decided to run again in 2020 for the same seat, the party would say, hey, that's damn good. What a great result in 2018. We're going to rally around you now. Well, you'd be wrong. And that party elite nonsense goes back to 2018 when Kara defeated a blue dog Democrat favored by the party apparatchniks in the Democratic primary. Right, that would be just before she came close to winning the seat and probably would have won if the party elites had gotten over their childish, sulking behavior and thrown in with her campaign once she was the nominee. Well, she's not backing down, and she's back for another run, and Kara joins me to talk about the campaign. And there are so many weighty issues on your website, Kara, and uh, you've been a veteran campaigner. The most important thing that jumped out to me, and I really want to get this on the record and very clear, have you in fact found the best wings in Nebraska, which apparently is one of your lifelong goals or campaign goals? Yes, I tend to have very lofty goals. And I have found, I would say, I I can't imagine a better chicken wing than at a local restaurant in Omaha called Tracks. And they, the thing that's so amazing about them is that they grill them and then also put them in the sauce. And so it's, it's a perfect wing. Huh. So when you win this seat um, next year, they'll probably have a big, huge picture of you with your face all full of the, the sauce and so on, digging into those wings. You're going to be, you're going to, they'll probably name something after you. I would be honored to have a chicken wing named after me, but no, there will never be a picture of me covered in sauce. <laughs> <You're>, <laughs> you, you don't want to make the Michael Dukakis uh, mistake of, uh, at least in, in the chicken wing variety. That's right, exactly. Okay. So to be a little bit more serious, I mean, we spoke, you and I spoke on this program over two years ago in June of 2018 when you were running in the primary. And the thing about this is you won the primary, you defeated the preferred candidate, the preferred candidate of the DCCC, the Inside the Beltway Washington folks. And you came really close to actually winning the general election, only short 5,000 votes out of 250,000 cast under 2%. So you came really close to winning a slightly Republican district. And I'm wondering, first of all, how has the establishment responded to you now, given that you show that you actually know how to campaign, you know how to appeal to the voters in that district? Yeah, we, um, I mean, we, we ran such a strong grassroots campaign that I'm really proud of. And I, I didn't necessarily know how the Democratic Party would respond to my jumping back in the race. To be honest, I think candidates are usually recruited or convinced to run. And and so we. I was never that candidate. I, I did this a lot on my own with the help of friends and family members and people that I trust and respect. And they were not apparently super excited about the idea of my running. They actually recruited somebody to run against me in the primary. And, but I, I which is unfortunate. And I'm sure there are all kinds of reasons we could speculate as to why that has happened, but the reality is I, I, I am true to who I am. I'm not taking corporate PAC money, running on progressive issues that people care about, and and I, I believe the, the party, at least from conversations I've had with the DCCC recently, they, 
they believe I'm going to win the primary. And so it's kind of an interesting scenario. And I think you mentioned perhaps a core reason that they were very suspicious of you in that you don't take corporate PAC money. And unfortunately, too many of the candidates, the Democratic Party's candidates, do run on corporate PAC money. In fact, the DCCC has no problem taking that kind of money. So I assume, and it's not just true about you, I assume that um, anytime someone says, I'm not for corporate PAC money, I'm a progressive, that people look at it with quite a bit of suspicion. Yes, I think that's po- that's very possible. And, and it's a shame because what it's resulted in is a government and elected officials who work for the you know corporations and the very wealthy over regular working people, and we need to change that model. And I think what we're seeing is this momentum where people are starting to understand that this is possible with some of the people that got elected in 2018, and and I think that momentum is carried into this election where people are tired. They're tired of corruption in politics. They're tired of a government that doesn't work for them, and they're tired of feeling like their voice doesn't count. And you were telepathic because I was actually going to suggest, and let's talk a little bit more about this. There's a different mood, I think, in the country. It started actually in 2018, perhaps a little bit before that, but it certainly started in 2018 with candidates like yourself, progressive candidates who ran all across the country on issues like Medicare for all, a fair wage for working people, raising the minimum wage, a big investment in infrastructure to deal with climate change. And all of a sudden, that's really the buzz and the central part of the conversation that's happening within the party and frankly in the country. And I'm wondering if you're now seeing that in terms of the people that you're appealing to voters, when you're knocking on doors, when you're talking to people, have you seen that shift in people's perceptions and the conversations you're having? We have, we have, and and we have already started making voter contacts. We've made quite a few and, and that is exactly what's happening. They are these ideas, which it's funny because when you lay them out the way that you did, they're so common sense. They're, they make, I mean, it, they're so rational. They're pragmatic. They actually save money. Um, and they, and they get to the core of what's wrong in our country with big problems that we have to have big solutions to solve. But it's funny because when you just listed them out, I'm like, those are really, I mean, people having healthcare, having a livable wage, having a, having clean air and water, those are such simple. They seem so simple, right? And, and what we're hearing is people, coming around to these ideas of, that they're not really radical, but rather the way that we get to real change in this country where people have a voice and where um, people who are working two or three jobs finally get to say, you know what, this could be a different system. Like I'm seeing that there's this possibility of change in this country on a large scale that would actually impact people living in poverty, people, people of color, people who have just not necessarily had a, a, a loud voice and and people are excited they're excited that there's a candidate here that that is willing to speak up and represent them and to your point one of the things you have in your website is a section about income inequality and you lead with this sentence the world bank puts our income inequality on par with some of the poorest and unequal nations in the world which is actually a stunning realization. I mean, many of us know that, but I think you say that in such clear and easy language for people to read that sense and say, oh my goodness. And then you say, this is dangerous for our economy. And explain what you mean by that. Well, when we have an economy that is solely tilted towards a very small portion of the population and leaves everyone else out, we are all susceptible to 
issues, right? It, we are a much better society. We're much better neighborhoods. We're much better communities when everyone is healthy, when everyone is educated, when we're not victimized by gun violence, and when income inequality is no, not vastly out of control. Because we don't, you know, most of us actually live in a world where we visit other parts of our communities, where we're driving around, we're going to restaurants and coffee shops and frequenting business in other parts, not just exactly where we live. And if you're not doing that, you should, right? Um, but, but in order to have healthy, robust communities, we can't have such disparities in income because it impacts all of us. Now, also in the United States of America, where we have the largest economy of any country in the world, we can certainly afford to make sure that we have the things that we need and that we're actually looking out for the, you know, the 9% of people who do not reside within that 1% of extreme wealth. Um, it just, it just seems like the balance of power, the, the balance of money and the balance of influence needs to switch and to shift over to the majority of people. And, and one of the ways we do that is by running as unapologetic progressive Democrats who are saying, we're not going to take corporate PAC money. We're not going to be beholden to large corporations. And we're actually going to put the, the needs and the will and the, and the good of the people over everything else. And I assume um, that you are finding that that kind of issue and that kind of approach, those kinds of stances, those progressive ideas are just as relevant to Nebraska, which people don't necessarily think is progressive, say, like Queens, New York or Manhattan. Uh, that's not the perception of people. But your district is quite urban, but still it's Nebraska and people have a sense that it's at least more conservative. But it sounds like what you're saying is these kinds of issues appeal to people no matter where they are, at least self-perception where they are on the political spectrum. Right. Well, and, and that makes sense, right? Because they're pragmatic, practical issues that are actually in line with the vast majority of Americans. Most Americans agree that we need, you know, universal background checks when it comes to gun safety. The majority of Americans agree we need a livable wage, that we need to do something about climate change. 53% of Republicans think that we need a government universal health care program. So these are all very popular ideas. And what's interesting about Nebraska is we used to be a prairie progressive state. We had, you know, a few, you know, a couple decades ago, we had uh, Democratic governors, mayors in Omaha, um, Senate, can't, you know, senators, and and so we haven't always been this deep red state. And I think frustration with both parties has led to a, to a point where people are just frustrated. With, with the system. They're frustrated that they feel like they, they aren't being heard by their leaders. And, and I think that that is in part what, elected, what got Donald Trump elected. And so we need for people to go out and speak out. And I, I understand that I might be the first candidate in this district to be leading that charge. And, and I, I, I think I can win on it. Otherwise, I wouldn't be doing it again. But we're creating a movement and, and people are starting to wake up and see that there can be something different. And in Nebraska, sometimes it takes us a minute to, to embrace new ideas. I remember when the, one of the first sushi places opened in Omaha, we were like, what's that? <laughs> um, and, and now we have sushi places all over Omaha. So I think it, it absolutely can be done. Um, and, but I think it, it, it takes a grassroots movement. It takes a lot of hard work. And, and I imagine it might take two cycles of running to Cong for Congress to get people to, uh, to realize that I, I am who I say I am and that, 
I'm not backing away from my ideas, but that I am truly somebody who's going to listen to people who live in this district from any party and, and really put the needs of the district before before any before a political party, before what corporations want, and and I'm going to do what's best for the district. I just want to make sure, and, and I won't ask you your position about sushi versus wings because we don't want to get into a huge, big, big, big uh, scandal, right? We'll just leave it at that. Right. Uh, well, and that might take up the whole podcast. <laughs> okay. Now, to circle back to be more serious, I noted that in your healthcare position, you didn't explicitly say that you're on board or supporting Medicare for all or a specific program. You talk about obviously that healthcare is a human right. There's a crisis, drug prices are too high. So explain a little bit about your vision about how we solve the healthcare crisis. Are you a Medicare for all proponent? Well, and I, the reason we did that is, is one, we actually don't have any specific policy proposal listed on the website because they've changed over time and we didn't want people to be confused. Um, about where I stand on things. And and so right now what I'm hearing from people is that there there's confusion between the concept of Medicare for all and then the specific bills that are out there. And so I, I'm starting with the values, right? I believe healthcare is a human right. We cannot afford the path we're on and we need a system where we are actually saving people and the government money and where people can actually have freedom of choice when it comes to their physicians, their nurses, their clinics, because right now we've got the whole in-network, out-of-network thing, which I've never understood. I don't think most people get it. Right now we have prescription drugs that are out of control. And, and, and doctors are feeling, they feel limited by insurance companies of how they can practice medicine. So there is a specific bill that Pramila Jayapal has introduced, which is, you know, falls under the Medicare for All Act. And I think that's the name of it. But um, that, that fixes Medicare. It, it provides for long-term care. It provides for vision, dental, and hearing, and actually creates a system where there are no longer financial barriers to accessing healthcare, and it saves money over time. And I think that that is one of the most critical pieces that when we're looking at healthcare in our country and the projected costs of healthcare, it's, it's soon getting to rises of 5% every, every year, our outcomes are so poor compared to how much we're spending, we need a different system. I know it's on your mind as a smart political person, and I wonder whether it's on the minds of voters that Medicare for all is a great concept. I totally support it, but do people consider the political practicalities of trying to pass it? And I'm speaking specifically of where all good policy proposals go to die, which is the United States Senate. I mean, the practical reality (laughs) is that if the Democrats don't control the Senate, Medicare for all will not become a reality. And in fact, if the Democrats, by some good fortune, control the Senate at best by, say, 51 or 52 votes, they have one or two vote majority, they're going to be pretty conservative Democrats there who don't support Medicare for all. So how do you envision being a leader in the House and trying to push that? Is it about pushing the envelope and changing the conversation so we eventually get there and noting to voters that it may not happen the first year? Uh, I don't think so. I, because I think that there is, there are many scenarios where this becomes priority one. And because healthcare is the number one thing we hear from voters at the doors. And it's the reason why I want to go to Congress. I want to fix our healthcare system and, and be involved in that in whatever possible way. So do I think that if we don't have a different president and we don't flip the Senate and, and, uh, you know, that 
you know, that, that then, then that's possible. I think that there, there are changes that are possible. But I think if we actually are able to change this presidency, you know, pick up seats in the Senate and, and also have some more campaigns that are out there pushing for this concept of expanded health care in a way that it's not spreading misinformation. And I'm actually kind of disappointed at the way that the misinformation has spread about these issues. Um, I, I think there's a real opportunity here to do something incredible for Americans that they want done. Well, I've often suggested and often wondered why we simply don't make the economic case and that really every single business, every single business should be in favor of Medicare for all because of all the money that small businesses, large businesses spend on healthcare costs, and that every CEO in America, if they had a moral understanding, but also if they just looked at it from strict economic standpoint, they would be in favor of Medicare for all because you would free up all that money to do things that are now being essentially underwritten or essentially money is being wasted on healthcare costs. Yeah, it's funny. I just had a conversation with the CEO of a, of a pizza franchise in Nebraska, and he said they spend seven hundred thousand dollars a year on healthcare for their employees. And I and and I and he, and I looked at him and said, "Well, what else? What what could you do if you didn't have to spend that seven hundred thousand? And his eyes got huge. And um, and we, then we had a great conversation of the ways that he could invest. And the first thing he said, "Well, is everybody gets raises? I mean, this would significantly impact businesses and and their employees. And that's where our focus should be going." And last question, I'll throw out at you is the issue of climate change, partly because you, and I think others, but certainly it's great to see that you are highlighting it and you call it the number one moral and security threat our nation faces. And again, to get practical, I mean, my goodness, Nebraska would be the perfect place to have a ton of windmills everywhere, right? You've got lots of wind across the plains and you could really lead the nation in showing how those kinds of alternative energies could work um, especially again in Nebraska, because of the way in which wind is such a you know a regular fact of life. That's right. That's right. We are a very windy and sunny state, and our farming communities have been decimated by the combination of climate change and tariffs. And we should be leading the world in wind power, and and we are. And I, and I've talked to some of the the experts in the in the wind industry and. Um, and, and basically, they're saying, like, it, it's just political will that we just need to get new leaders in charge. And we could we could lead the we could lead the country and the world in this. And this is an area where we don't have time to wait. It, it's not OK for politicians to say they don't believe the science or they're not ready for this or that bold solutions are, are not. Um, are, are too lofty, especially when we're tying this to economic development and workforce development. And so there is, this is the time for a green economic revolution. And, and we can do that where we're paying, we're making good pay, you know, great paying jobs that are union jobs, where we're investing in infrastructure, that's all local stuff. And that where we're not outsourcing these things to other countries. Like this is the time because we have time to wait. That'll do it for this week's podcast. Thanks to my guest, Yannette Lathrop and Kara Eastman. Our audio editor, as usual, is David Hebden. 
Thanks to our major sponsor, the American Postal Workers Union. Of course, we invite you to become a subscriber and a sponsor as well. Go over to workinglife.org right now, click on the podcast tab and find your way over to Patreon. And in the spirit of the holidays, become a sponsor at whatever level you can afford. Again, Merry Christmas. Thanks for listening. Look forward to having you back next week. Music